You're listening to another great show from the Nod Network. Find more great content at nerdod.com. You're listening to Whiskey and Words. I'm David Olson, and this is our inaugural episode where we welcome on novelist and short story writer Tom Rowe. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. So we've brought Tom here today to have a talk about some of his writing, uh, what he's been doing, what he's done, what he's doing in the future, and also to talk about the process behind it. While we do that, we're also going to have a drink, uh, because what is writing without a good whiskey to go with it? Oh, yeah. Uh, and this week we've got Writer's Tears, which we thought was particularly apt for our podcast, Evolving Writers. So welcome, Tom. You are a novelist. You are a short story writer. You are working on another novel, I believe. Yeah, I'm working on uh, novel number two and sort of number three at the moment as well, but it's just kind of in the early stages. But I'm hoping number two sticks. So yeah, I'm currently working on one that's based on one of the, one of my short stories, which is how which is how they always start. But yeah, yeah, looking forward to flushing that one out a little more. Nice. And that's always the thing as well. You have so many ideas. It's making sure you can get one and stick with it and work on it and get to completion. Because I know that a lot of other writers, myself included, have trouble with finishing a project necessarily. I know I do. I'm always starting things and never completing them. So I suppose if you've got a great idea and you want to work on it and you want to go with it, it's good to have other ideas on the go as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you've said lots and lots of times, if there's something we do really well, it's procrastinate. You know you're a writer when you've always got lots of different ideas flowing through your head and uh, and they never seem to have a home until you actually properly lay them down and, and there's you, you know you can just work on them from there. So you've got your first novel, Not Dark Yet, your short story collection, Alcoves Inside the Lining. Yep. Big fan of that, as you know. Thank you. Um, and do you have a title for the other novels, or are you keeping that under wraps for now? Just so. Well, the short story, which is in the Alcoves Inside the Lining collection, is called uh, Waiting for Francis. So I'm not sure whether to keep that or to go with a different title, because I'm going to be fleshing it out, and it's going to be a little more... Essentially, the story, long, long story short, <laughs> is uh, it's about a a guy who has two guys really, and one of them has just told the other on a slightly drunken night out that he has terminal cancer, and that you know he, he roughly he has like roughly six months to live. The short story is is that's already happened, and he's kind of coming to the end of his life, but all throughout their lives from their sort of early 20s up to them now being in their 60s they've always gone to the same bar and done the same things and it's sort of set in a small town so they've always had these bigger dreams and they've never really gone anywhere with them Uh, but this is going to be about sort of the six months leading up to that and basically how that affects both their lives and how it makes the... um, makes the main person the one who's not dying. I've not got names for them yet, apart from Francis, obviously. How it makes him think about his life and how he it's not too late, basically, to, to do some of the things he actually wanted to do. Light, light through the dark. Yes. I'm trying to, be, trying to do that a little more. Yeah. Well, I think that we've known each other for a little while now, and I've, I've, heard, I've had the privilege of hearing a number of your stories, and I think that that's one of the things that comes across, and hopefully with the reading that you've got for us today, We'll see some of that as well. Yeah. Where you you have a great skill of taking quite a quite a dark or or tragic situation, but injecting some hope and light into it. And I think that you know at times I may have used the word melancholy when talking about your writing, but I've never meant that in a negative fashion. No. It's always been you've got this great way of balancing what is quite a quite a serious subject or quite an upsetting situation or something quite tense, 
but still managing to leave some kind of some lightness to it and some heart to it, which yeah. I think is one of your major strengths. I don't think I never would take anyone using the word melancholy in a bad way because I don't see it as a bad thing. Because just like happiness, sadness, anything, it's there for a reason, and we use it for for particular reasons. But yeah, I, I, I take I take melancholy as kind of a compliment. But I try to I try, I've been trying more and more to inject a little more hope into it because we all write in our own ways and our own unique styles. Uh, and I know some great writers who who write some really really dark stuff. But it's hard to read. They're great writers, but it's really hard to read. And I think it's important you you give your, list, your listener or your reader even you give give them something to root for and a little bit of hope. You know, I drink to hope. Should we drink to hope? I think we should with some writer's tears. It's a nice sound. Okay, so this is a, this is Irish, isn't it? It is indeed. More of a sort of a bourbon guy, but I, I don't mind a bit of Irish. Cheers. Cheers. It's a smooth one. A little burn on the end. It's yeah. nice. Like a little kick. Mm. Touch of water or are you good at that? I think I'm good. It's definitely, it's big on honey, definitely. Mm. That is nice. I like that. It's actually, it reminds me, not as strong, but it reminds me of those sort of liqueurs that come out around Christmas. Like the Jack Daniels Tennessee honey thing, mm. it's really strong on it's honey. Like, like a richness to it, isn't it? Yeah, but not sweet like those. Not like you know, like generically sweet and kind of killing the whiskey. Mm. Um, it's really warm as well. I Thank like you, it. Ireland. Well, yeah. That. Yeah. So I wanted to ask because you mentioned that obviously you've got the short story collection, you've got a novel, you've got other words in the works, and you've actually got a novel based on one of your own short stories. So out of those two kind of mediums, sort of the the shorter form and the, the longer form. Do you have a preference over which you write? Do you find one that's more natural, or do you think it depends totally on what you're writing at the time? It depends. Yeah, it depends uh, on how I'm feeling at the particular time. Because I'm, I'm in a slightly odd situation where the first novel I wrote wasn't actually a novel. I had always been interested by writing, and I, essentially it was more uh, for therapeutic reasons. And I know that's how a lot of writers start, but essentially. I was having trouble with dealing with uh, me and my ex-wife breaking up and basically my grandfather dying around the same time, who was very fatherly to me. And I just didn't know what to do to deal with that. And so I just started writing and I ended up basically writing 700 pages of just, just I didn't even know what it was. It was, um, it was autobiographical, I was throwing in elements there of, of future thoughts, past thoughts. I'm not going to lie, uh, quite dark thoughts as well, oh, okay. because it was it was a very difficult time. But when I like handed it out to sort of people who knew me well and I knew wouldn't just go, yeah, that's great, that's amazing. Be- uh, they and they actually said, you might have something here because it's enjoyable to read, but it's rough around the edges. I sort of started taking it more seriously and condensed it to sort of two hundred and ninety odd pages. Because I don't think they're necessarily good people to have around you, those that will just go, yeah, that's great, it's wonderful, yeah. Well, that's, that's the hardest thing, isn't it? I suppose if you're, no matter what kind of creative field you're in, if you produce something and you give it to people who you know are going to be positive about it, no matter what it is, you can't get any better, can you? You can't grow from, that's great work. Thanks, I appreciate that you think it's great work, but what can I do better? Exactly. And I mean, uh, I used to be really doubtful about writing groups as well. And the writing group where we met has actually been the best one I've been to. I was with like two or three before that and I just I found they were quite up their own arse and 
basically there was no there was no sense of growth about them. It was people that either loved each other's own work or it was people that just were, were quite scathing. There's nothing wrong with scathing if it's constructive. There's nothing wrong with positivity if it's constructive. But I found with this group, which I was in from week one, albeit it took a while to take off, and I know you were in it from week two or three, week I can't two, remember, yeah. week two. Um, time ago. It's a supportive environment. So I think as a writer, I, as much as I doubted it for a long time, and it's very easy to go all internal and you know try and think, yeah, my voice, it's my voice. I don't need other people. I find it incredibly important to get their thoughts. And it's important to find a group where those people will be honest with you. Mm. Never be a dick about it, but they'll just be <laughs> just be completely honest with you. And that, that if there's something that they spot and they don't like, they'll say it. But that it's constructive as well. Yeah. Because you can you learn to appreciate that. Even if you're incredibly precious about your work or at first you feel it's intensely personal, as I did, as I'm sure many have in that group, you you learn to you learn to accept that. And these people end up also can end up becoming really good friends. Yeah, and I think that I know full well that I have been very guilty in the past of being particularly precious about something. I will take, I will write something, and I'll think, well, that's great. I know it's great. I don't want to change it. I don't want feedback on it. I don't want to be told what I could do or differently. And that's just the worst thing you can do Absolutely, as a writer, yeah. because if you take your work and you go, my work is the best, and that is that, you can almost guarantee that you are not, and that's a real shame. Because I know, you know, I know in the past that you've shared some of your works, and, and I've delivered feedback, and it's never taken away from the work as it is, exactly. or, or the work that you've put in, it's always been, I mean, I've heard something and thought, well, perhaps I would have said it this way. And then it's that, you can take that feedback, or you can go, well, no, I've written it this way for a reason. And that's and that's perfectly fine, as long as, if you're willing to take that kind of, that step to get the feedback, it's gonna make you better, yeah. definitely. And I think that you're right, I think that when it's something is, as deeply personal as something that is, you know, particularly autobiographical as well, it can be hard to hear someone say, well, you should change that. Because you know that doesn't sound right, or that doesn't you know land properly, yeah. and you know you can think, well, hang on, it did land. It hit me personally, I know, and but it's still that. How do you adapt that into something that's going to not just soothe your soul, but also be affecting to others? Exactly. Yeah, I've found in the past, sort of when I'm giving critiques as well, I've I've often been concerned. I've I've sounded too harsh to people because what tends to happen as well, if if you're anything like me, is if you hear something you like, you'll tend to be a bit more. Uh, you tend to be a bit more harsh about it if there's elements of it that you like, you're not sure about, or that you um, that because you enjoy what you were hearing so much, and then you'll hear parts that you don't like, you'll focus on those parts. But as long as it's constructive, it's all good, um, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's just feedback is essential, isn't it? It's just, it's just essential. You have to have that, no matter what you're doing. You have to have that. Yeah. So, on that is a story that. You, I've heard you read before. Yes. And it's a story that I'm sure I gave feedback on at the time, probably. I don't know. And it's one of my favorites from your short story collection, Alcove's Sidelining. And upon reading it again, I realized that the title of the book came from this it, what, story. It did, yes. Which is very exciting. So that story, uh, it's called What Do You Do, Annie? Yes, is right? it is, yes. Fantastic. And I was hoping we've got three excerpts from it today, because yeah. I know that... There's always that question with short stories is what makes a short story? <coughs> you know, from my writing, that short stories are often very short stories, yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas yours are definitely, a, you know, a longer form than yeah. that. So it's a fantastic story, but you've got three sections of it today to read for us. I have, yeah. The, the story itself is something like 5,000 words long. So, so, so yeah, well, I've got three sections, um, three excerpts, rather. So, yeah, I'll, I'll start those whenever. we start them now. Oh, yeah, I love First it. One. Good, just yes, please. Okay, <clears throat> the first one's the very beginning of the story. 
writes, There was barely enough light in the sky to justify a celebration, but there was just enough, and we always found a reason. That's what friends, old, new, or in the distant hazy past are for. Some friends are a combination of all three put together, and for the winter, my third in the city, I had been settling for a little old and a little new. That combination of old and new was the reason I'd fallen for the city. It's a place filled in with walls full of contrasts that work as well together as they do apart, and for that they felt as much like friends as the people did. It could have been worse. I didn't have any choice to, but to become tangled in it all. It had stayed a little light after midday for November, which made me thankful. It came right on the heels of a summer that held everything you could want, with the heat a little higher than you might like. A summer that went way too fast and led to an even quicker breakup. Perhaps it was a little too quick, but then, don't they all feel like that? All I knew leaving the bed that morning, pulling the covers back, my bare feet curling at the shock on the cold floor, was that autumn hadn't seemed to happen, and that it wasn't as warm under the sheets as it could have been, for as long as it used to be, as it was in the summer. I used to struggle to get Edie up in the morning, and she'd roll around in the duvet until she had no choice. I straighten it out every day as well as I can, like I always tried with everything else underneath there. Edie could push herself when she wanted to. She was headstrong, and it was a fine head it all sat inside, but she was a victim of SAD. She hated the abbreviation as much as the disease itself, and some mornings she would rant and curse, throwing herself around the room like a ragdoll, just to get herself to move. I pulled the duvet back around me and walked into the living room. It was too cold and too bright in there without it. The lack of sunlight not only made it harder for her, but it made the bruises from the smacks on the bedside table as she turned violently in the night look harsher, and the cuts from the cookery on the floor from last night's Chinese she'd accidentally fall out of bed onto look a little deeper. Though maybe sometimes that was just the colour of what she'd have every time rather than what she was feeling. She'd had red sweet and sour chicken with brown rice and a Coke Zero. I'd have crispy Sichuan beef. November mornings like these felt like military operations with a foe that couldn't be diagnosed or killed, seemingly implanted intravenously in the night into the best person you can imagine. When it wasn't winter, Edie was summer herself, and we'd walk around taking in the corners of the city staying away from the crowds and settling into our own places without moving for hours. The fountain not far from here, the curving bridges near spinning fields where we'd get some peace, and she would sit and knit and I'd read something like Carver, short stories easy to be distracted from, just like she needed and I came to love. Every once in a while she'd miss a stitch, sigh and lean her head on my shoulder. The time I remember most of all was during one of the wettest summers we'd had, and she got frustrated with how tidily she'd make those nits through the blurred, watery vision in her eyes, and thrust her big nit half-jumper to the ground, without looking what she was doing. It was almost instantaneous regret when she dived down there to grab it, before any lasting damage was done. She buried her head in the coat around my waist, her wet hands touching and soaking through my sleeve, laughing at herself. She'd pull her face from my coat, still laughing softly, and look up at me through the fringe that was way too long, but perfect enough to reflect the frustration 
she had inside her as much as the playfulness on the outside. I didn't remember it because of all that. I remembered it because when she cleared the hair from in front of her eyes and she told me I had a look on my face that could keep her for a lifetime and did this little snapping movement with her hands just like she'd taken a picture of me in that moment. She spent the rest of her time leaning and reading along with me. She kept pecking my neck with her nose for attention, so I'd turn and look at her, and when I finally pushed her away, she'd shrug and start knitting again. I always had the strange fear that if I stared too long, she might just change. So I only looked at her after that, when I knew she'd gone into the world in which she felt comfortable enough in herself to get lost while she knitted away. I turned pages as if I was still reading. But I was watching her weave that tapestry. She looked at that knit for a while after, as if ruined and abandoned it there. She thought that it had become too damaged to become anything good, for it to be anything lasting. To me, it felt like she was making something perfect. That was the year that I discovered Starbucks, the northern quarter of Manchester, sourdough bread and love. It was easy to love that city, especially with her. She had trouble walking around the thousands of people you can see from way up in our apartment that looked down over Deansgate, the main road flowing through the city, retail on one end, the money at the other, us somewhere in the middle, on top of it all, with all the high-end boutiques, all glass and show, where nothing suited us. It was there in that apartment that I first saw what they tell you you'll notice when you think you've found the one. The kink in her personality that you recognise as the only part of her that no one else was yet to see. Thank you, Sam. That was the opening of the story, and I think that it sets it up in such a really lovely way, where you not only address the love of these two characters, but the fact that that's over as of right now as well. Yeah. Quite clearly, and that's really nice. Thank you. Now, I had a couple questions just about that section of the writing. Yep. So in, in this story... You talk uh, about love in a very candid, very sort of matter-of-fact way. How much of your characterization do you pull from real people and experiences, and how much is just full fictional creation? Well, Alcoves Inside the Lining is almost entirely fiction, but there's, I don't think there's any way you can write pure fiction. I think if that were possible, you're either a genius or you're not really connecting with anyone from your writing. I mean, we use our experience in every day in our life, uh, you know, in the decisions we make, whether it's having a dessert after your main meal because you might be conscious of your weight, you know, because someone called you a fatty when you were 15 years old or something like that, or you just, I don't know, signed a merger of two companies. It's all stored in your gut, I think. And writing's just another way to do that, a way that other people can appreciate and connect with, I think. That's essentially what I wanted to get across in this short stories collection. That when we hit roadblocks and important decisions and that's, and how we deal with those, and it's often from our past and the things that we store in our gut uh, from experience. I like to think, you know, it's coming from the characters' guts in the stories too. And although the story's a particular exception because of that sort of the personal nature to it, so I'm drawing a lot from people who I know and I was very, very close with one in particular. Other things like, you know, the the SAD, the Seasonal Affective Disorder, were from someone I was with for a very long time, and I understood the struggles of that and what came with it. And also the things like that, how knitting was important to her, and, you know. So it was important to put those things in, because when I set out writing it, 
much like with the novel in the first place. I didn't really want to upset anyone, but at the same time, it was about something in my gut and I want it to be right. So it was important that I kind of got that right. Um, and I was honest in that. It's, I would say it's sort of 80% true and the rest is kind of fiction and, and, uh, you, you know, you know, made up from my head or from, from other things that have happened in life. So yeah, so mostly I would say this one in particular is from real people and situate in situations as they occurred. But as I say, I don't think there's anything, any writer out there who writes something that people genuinely appreciate and love that isn't drawing that from something in themselves. Well, yeah, well, the, the best fiction is 90% truth, isn't it? It's sort yeah. of like that where you can pull from something real, make it feel more real as well. So, no, that's amazing. I think that, that one other question I have was, I, I always hear the question about inspiration. People always say, oh, where did you get the idea from? Or, or what inspired you to write this? And you said there that obviously there's, there's a, a personal element to the story, but was it a case of, did you write this one in a sense like with, with your novel where it was sort of cathartic and it was good to sort of get the story down? Or was it simply you thought, this would make a great story, I should record this because it's something that others might wish to, to experience or hear from? It was a little bit of both, really. Um, I wanted to write it and I wanted it to be a very, very good story that people could appreciate and, and get on board with and hopefully fall in love with a little bit. Because I think it's important that we share sort of life's experiences like that. As I say, this one is kind of directly from the heart for the most part. But, yeah, it was also a sense of catharsis. Um, one of my big worries with, with being a writer, especially starting the way that I did, was that I wouldn't be able to make the transition into, into pure fiction, if you want to call it pure fiction. So, because I'd always written from the heart and from the gut and things that had actually happened... And it took me a while to kind of realise that those are good experiences to have had and that you can still sort of leech from those uh, and use them in, in other stories. And so basically every short story that's in my collection, for example, has an element of something in my life that's come and gone um, or that's, that you know still remains, whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. Because, again, I think it's, it's important that... I, I think people will only really get on board with a story if, if, if there's something, something, some sense of truth coming from it. And I think that's really important. It's probably the most important thing for me. So one thing I've noticed in your writings in general, not specifically just this piece, but this one as well as, uh, is, is the richness of the detail. So in people, in places, in situations. So in the section that you've just shared, the detail is especially focused on the character Edie and her condition. So what kind of research goes in uh, sort of when you're dealing with people's behaviours and, and conditions and those kinds, if any? Well, I think I've already uh, touched upon the fact that Edie was based on a very real person. So I've kind of done my own research in living my life yeah. and you know living with her in her life. When going into trying to write fiction, uh, I found I was getting mixed results with short stories. Um, I'd finished the novel and I wanted to try writing something that I could finish uh, that wasn't another novel. So at the time I was, I was a little bit, uh, just a little bit burnt out from writing something that extensive. But I was finding with the short stories they weren't really connecting either with me or, um, or with kind of, you know, people that were reading them. So 
um, a very good friend of mine, I was sat with him in a bar not far from here and I was talking about it and he knew how much sort of writing meant to me and how important it was. So he was like, uh, he was asking me about sort of uh, sort of girls and, you know, like if I was seeing anyone and stuff like that. And I, and I ended up sort of telling him this story about that he, he didn't yet know about where I'd come from and, and what had happened. And he was like, that's what you need to write. It's like, this is, this is what you need to write. He read some of my other, my other stuff and it just, he hadn't really connected properly. It's like, this is what you need to write because it's coming directly from you. So that's what I, I did. I wrote, what do you do, Annie? And I found, one, I'm one of those writers that doesn't like his own work too much. Probably uh, too hard on myself. But I was finding that other people were actually connecting to it and their responses to it were a lot more positive and, and genuinely positive, not just like, oh, yeah, that, that's really good. It, it really means something. But just like they were actually like moments sort of like, the first time I read it out to a group of people, people who were listening to it actually kind of gasp a little bit. This this sort of moments where that happens obviously haven't happened yet. That's when you know you've got something that's that's good, I think. And that all came from kind of putting that personal experience out there. Just doing it kind of raw. It's easy to say just sit there and write your heart out because it can become really, really depressing. But it was important to do that to then understand the importance of understanding other people that, in the situations you might write about. After that, when I wrote short stories, I ended up doing a lot more research into those people Yeah. Uh, in those situations. Because I, I've, I've, had, I've had short stories where I've just I've thrown them out because they were really good ideas, but I, I didn't feel like I was in a place in my life to fully appreciate their situations, or I just, I just didn't feel justified in writing about them. Yeah. Sort of like... I started writing a short story that, uh, long story short, was around someone who was born into the wrong body. And I really, really wanted to write on that subject because I like writing about people with conflicts, and that's a, that's a massive conflict. And I just I started it, and I sort of consulted with a couple of people from the LGBT community and asked them about it. And when they were talking about it, they were quite surface about it, which is understandable because it's... As, as much as they are a lot happier to be who they are now, it's an intensely personal thing to ask someone. Yeah. And I and at the end of it, I tried writing it, and I'd got some really good thoughts and ideas from them. But I kind of sat there and thought to myself, I don't think I'm in a place to write this because I think it's really important you get it right. And and I and I'm not saying <clears throat> I'm not saying to anyone that wants to be a writer or is a writer, don't write about subjects that you don't know or aren't related to you because. Otherwise, we wouldn't have uh, we wouldn't have like Harry Potter or, or anything yeah, fantasy based. That's and I, I know that is based in fantasy and not. I was going to say not not real people, but there has to be some element of the human to connect to that. But we wouldn't have some of the great novels and some of the greatest stories ever written if people didn't go above their spectrum. It was just stuff like that. I didn't feel like I was in a particular place to write to write about that subject because I wanted to do it justice. Well, that's it, isn't it? You have to be fully comfortable and fully prepared to, to engage with the subject that you want to write about, or else you're not going to put the kind of effort into it that it deserves, I guess. And you're not going to acquit yourself in the way that you deserve as a writer as well. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I'm currently writing a short story. Of, um, it's surrounding two wars, actually. It's the Second World War. And then the next generation 
is in the Vietnam War. And I want to get this one right, but I'm, I'm feeling I'm in a better place, a more mature place in my head. Um, well, it's the emotion, isn't it? Emotion yeah. can come from a number of different places. It doesn't have to come from direct experience with that subject yeah. to be relatable. In researching that, uh, I found out all kinds of things like that, uh, like, for example, the, the Japanese in Burma w- would cannibalize Indian prisoners of war. And that has become a part of my story, not a, not a major part but a part that impacts some other aspects of it and, and, and leads it to being hopefully a better story because it's important to get it right. And that story as well, and obviously it's not the one we're sharing today, but from what I understand of that story, it's primarily a tale about a father and a son exactly, more than anything yeah. else. You know, the, the war is the backdrop, the war is the experience that's led them to where they are, but really your story is about the relationship between a father and a son and whether that's going to work or whether it's not. And I think that's that's kind of when you have that kind of purity of focus where that's the intention, the story is to tell this story, everything else around it simply helps to build up why that story is important. Exactly. So I don't think there's any, any risk of you appropriating some part of history that doesn't apply because everything that's ever happened has affected somebody in some way in an uh, indirect fashion. You know, someone will have experienced something somewhere which has changed how they react to a person on the street or yeah. anything like that. So I think that's, yeah, that's perfectly justified, I think. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. I think before we get off onto a different story, which I'm sure we can come back to at a later time, uh, I'd love to hear your second part. Absolutely, yeah. That's all right. Okay, yeah. So the second part is a little bit down the way. It's basically about the, the, main, the main character is now sort of out with some friends and uh, they're just, he's just been out with them and he's now kind of outside having a break. He's got all this stuff on his mind. It's, the breakup's still relatively recent. So he's now out in um, in Manchester with a couple of friends. Out on Thomas Street were the Northern Quarter runoffs. Students living off nothing but the inheritance that showed them under the real light that bars like this never could. Running through the puddles with wet feet from the holes in their boots. Shimmering and shaking with the reflection of low Christmas lights in the windows of the stores all around. That's why I liked it really that light that none of them really understood. But how can you put that to those finding their own happiness, even if they spend most of their time close to each other with their eyes shut? I knew the others would listen, all of them, even Max and Paula, all who had nowhere better to be, but who were undoubtedly, definitively alone. If there were others they could have gone with, they would have. If the growing festivities around the city had something better to offer than this, we would have taken it. The promise out there of lights on an evergreen that would be gone soon was enough to make me want to stay. For all of us but Matt and Grace sat there underneath the bare light bulbs in full colour, leaning against the thin cushions of the bare brick walls, warming each other's hands. It's too much of a grey, yet colourful time of year to be somewhere else but here. I like the ambience, I lied. Don't you? No. Most people around here move around all night, unsettled, following the drunken herd. It's a practice I'd never quite understood. It's just more of a chance to keep bumping into people you don't want to, whether you know it or know them for that matter. I think it's easier to see these things with your eyes open, because Matt and Grace wanted to join the herd, so I told them to join me outside in a few minutes. I stood outside smoking the last cigarette of the night, 
sipping on the half-empty bottle of Jim Beam Black that I quietly carried around on nights like these, having needed to escape the mindless conversation behind the doorway I stood in, waiting. It was colder out there, but it felt better. Nicotine and the smoke blowing back in my face in the back alley, December wind, warmed me enough to tolerate being out there. Peace only disturbed by the scarved Middle Eastern woman selling roses to the lucky men who could return drunk to the disgruntled but easily swayed home with a single red offering. The street vendors never really stop, much like the roaming homeless who've moved into the northern quarter. Somewhere along the way, they'd figured out where the money had shifted to. Around here, they'll try all kinds of things to get under the skin and into the wallets of the sensitive and the caring. When the rose vendor is tired of asking and walked by toward the passage to Thomas Street, I felt like I was alone and enjoyed that winter gust all for myself. But I wasn't alone. There's two types of girls who can ask you for a light and sometimes the smoke to go with it. There's the packet girl, whose very existence is based on convenience because of the busy life she's come to know and a few spare coins to allow for the decadence. Annie was a paper girl. Thanks, man. You got roll-ups in the Zippo. What's that all about? Well, if you're going to make yourself feel a little better by killing yourself, you need good hardware. Why not choose a good one? Okay. She looked a little unsure. It's just something I haven't seen before. Roll-ups go with ten-penny lights. It's like beef mash and gravy. We spend enough on this shit already, don't we? They got us and now we're paying for it, I'd say, becoming animated with my hands. Present company excluded, I mean. Sorry. No, no, I, I didn't mean it like that. Not like that. All I mean is, they already got us inside. We should take them for what they have. While they're taking us, you know? I was drunk. Not really. I just assumed you like to save money. Round here. She looked around at a man walking by, trying desperately to look like Hemingway, drinking from a bottle of whiskey in a paper bag ripped enough to show that it was an 18-year-old Yamazaki. I scrunched up my face and shook my head, and Annie laughed for the first time. Fair enough, she said, shaking her head, taking a seat on the step, where I joined her less elegantly. What do you think he'd say if I asked him for a shot? I don't know. Probably something about how he needed it for his art. I took a hit of Beam. And by that, he'd actually mean his daydreams of screenplays while he watches a Scandinavian police drama on Netflix and wanks himself off to Pollock. Hemingway turned around and stumbled into a scowl at me while Annie laughed into her drooping jacket sleeve. I showed him the finger and he waved his bottle at me, growling like a drunken pirate. And Annie exploded, rolling into me. That's good stuff, though. He might be a tool, but he's got taste. I nodded along, smiling. She prodded me in the side with my lighter to hand it back to me. Cute lighter. She didn't look like your typical street girl. I remember thinking about how immaculate her legs looked. All ten feet of them, scary thin, but not bedraggled by the strain of the endless walk. Maybe she had enough inside her to care about that. Her voice didn't crack from loneliness. Maybe she had someone to talk to. The redness under her eyes looked natural and not brought on by any kind of addiction or a lack of sleep from the cold or the fear, somehow complementing amongst her healthy Mediterranean skin, slightly dimmed by the cold. 
Maybe she had somewhere to go. She'd been sleeping on the street since her ex had kicked her out for sleeping with their neighbour, or so he thought. While collecting his mail one, one afternoon, the neighbour had smelt like sex as he wandered by and greeted him with a knowing smile, while Annie hadn't wanted any for weeks. Fucking Warren, Annie had said at the beginning of every, of every breath. That's some kind of life, she said to me, while nursing that knobbly roll-up, but she'd been the one left to suffer for it. Maybe this was all some elaborate ruse, but even if it was, it was more interesting than what was going on inside on the other side of the door, at the top of the steps we were taking up with our cold bodies, our chat, our laughter, our drunken smoke. Where are you from, Annie? Here? I meant before, where'd you come from? Somewhere around that corner there? She shivered and pulled her thin pea jacket a little closer. It was too big for her and was one of the few things she had grabbed on the way out the door. I guess she figured if she took his, it would keep her a little warmer at night, but it didn't. It eclipsed her and that space. Those alcoves inside the lining let in the cold all the more. She wore little else, but little else is what made her stand out when we stood up having rested ourselves, and she seemed to stand taller than she actually did. I was quite happy to just let to just watch her talk and listen to her smoke, my last cigarette of the night. What do you do, darling? she asked, taking another hit of smoke and beam. Normally I respond with the most tragic thing in the world, but I don't think I could justify that with you, I said, handing her the bottle back. She laughed smokily under her breath and didn't ask me again. We talked a while longer about where she'd come from and how she'd gotten there. She talked about her rotten luck with rotten men, with the rotting family breaking at the seams, who nearly tore her apart, with the life that was still out there somewhere for her. So now you walk the streets looking for it. It's not an it. He's a him, this life, she said, waning a little. That's a sad choice, a sad end to a sad story. She sat back down on the step with a gentle thud, taking the bottle down with her, commencing staring at the ground, like it was something she'd known so well. What'd you put in my drink, she whispered. She hit the bottle again. Down on the floor, she was far more interesting than anything else from any night just like this, in any place, just like this one. She sighed and hit the bottle again. She looked up at me. It all adds up, but it makes good at story time and for moments when a girl needs something. What do you need? I don't know, but it certainly isn't this. Thank you for that. That was... The introduction of the title character yes. and her story, uh, and what a story it is. Thank you. So I thought, one of the things that stood out to me when I, when I read this through was, in this section of the story, you, you focus on the northern quarter of Manchester, uh, and sort of scratching off its superficial layer of, of opulence and focusing instead on the, sort of the seediness just beneath the surface. How important was it to you for this story to include the city itself as a character to be examined? I think everywhere has a seedy underbelly. It's just how how we want it to be seen and what kind of honesty we want to project from it. I mean, anyone that's been to the Northern Quarter uh, in Manchester has pros- possibly seen the lives it's kind of led. Um, I mean, less than twenty years ago, it was essentially a wasteland and it was uh, it was a bad area. 
um, there's buildings that weren't filled, you know, it was just, and everything was falling apart. And now it's this, this great, this area of, you know, economic rise where there's all these amazing trendy bars and that's brought the people along with it. So I think it's important that you include like the life of that. I think it's important that I included the life of the city in this as much as I did the people because this, again, for the story from a personal perspective, the city has, has played a, a massive part in my life. I had many choices about where to go after here, but I decided not to go anywhere else because uh, for me, everywhere, everything I need is right here. New York is as is, is vital to Breakfast at Tiffany's as the main character is. Um, Los Angeles is essential to so much fiction music and other art forms because it's just another environment that changes us too I mean I must admit I let my beard grow a little more around here it's just the way it is It's uh, Manchester's an underrated place we had Manchester 10-20 years ago but you know there's so much here in such a small small place unlike cities like London uh, where everything's so spread out but everything here screams for attention. And for writers, I think that's a place where you want to be. Manchester's as much my muse as New York was to Capote. Uh, not that I'm comparing, but... Well, no, no. <laughs> if you're going to compare yourself, that's a good one too. Yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, I just, I just mean it in, in terms of sort of how much, how important it's been for the story. But I think any city or any place or any backdrop is important to most stories because it's alive it's in the background embellishing everything and it's framing every story that happens. I think it was important to <clears throat> include Manchester's and specifically the Northern Quarter's details. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think especially with a city like Manchester, which has a very uh, industrial, perhaps sort of grittier background yeah. than a lot of other places, that now it has this kind of new veneer of, of uh, youth and wealth and those kind of things. And actually, this sort of that heart of it is still this industrial center with mills and warehouses and everything else. And yeah, you know, more of them now are tiki bars and burger restaurants, but they're still, they, they have that appearance of what they were to remind us of what they used to be. Yeah, and some of these bars and, and things pay tribute to that. Uh, like they'll, they'll retain aspects. This place called Cot- Cottonopolis, which I think might still have uh, the sort of the, the equipment that they used to, to make the cotton. Yeah, that's a nice touch, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So one question I had, and a question that came from social media as well, is about uh, process and about uh, structure and those kind of things. And I think that when you're writing, it can be very tempting just to jump straight into a project. When you're sitting down with a story, whether it's a short story or whether it's a novel idea, do you structure and plan? Do you, you know, I suppose it's more screenplay focused, but sort of storyboard with that? Uh, Or do you just get straight into the writing and see where you end up? I think it depends on the, the story itself because initially it's always I have an idea and then I might start writing it and other elements might come into it. But if it's something that I think is going to be quite elaborate, like the sort of the soldier story I'm talking about, which is essentially, uh, long story short, uh, about a father who's been to World War II and served in Burma, a British soldier. He's ended up living in America and his son, he's got two twin sons, and his son, one of them has gone to uh, Vietnam. It's kind of 30 years later and he's gone out to Vietnam. And his other son, is the, the twin brother, suffers short-term memory loss. So there's a number of elements with it. One, there's researching 
making sure you get the short-term memory loss right. And there's a reason that the sun has short-term memory loss and it's relevant to the story. Two, researching the wars. I need to get those right and how it worked with British soldiers going to Burma and the thing I told you about earlier with uh, how the, the Japanese would, would kind of eat Indian prisoners of war, cannibalism. And then there was, a, there was also research in Vietnam. And then it's combining all that into something that's palatable, but also, you know, making sure getting the relationships right because... Like you said earlier, it is ultimately uh, a story about fathers and sons. It, it's about it's about getting 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 that right. So a story like that, I would uh, initially I wrote the intro to it without really doing any of the research. But then when it came to those parts where I was talking about like flashbacks to World War Two, and from that I had to do research um, into sort of the the, the Vietnam War and and the 70s and you know that that time because it needed to be established that you know between the flashbacks and and the current day but also there's this element that comes into it where and we don't find out until later on but he's discovered someone in his son's company has been killed but they don't know who yet and because of communications being the way they were they had to uh, wait longer to find out exactly who's died who's injured so yeah, it kind of it was kind of a mixture of things uh, about just initially writing it, doing that research, but then also mixing those things in and getting getting it right. So with something like that, research is really really important. The first short story in the collection is essentially a story about uh, a guy who owns like a chain of coffee shops. And he he's just working one of them one day rather than doing the paperwork in one of the back offices, and he just happens to see someone that looks like a very old, an old flame of his. But that so just that thought makes him sort of just want to go and find out she still lives in the same place, because it was a very important part of his life when he met her. And although it was a brief flame that burnt out, he's become a bit lost in his life. So something like that, it's like a personal experience. So when I say um, it depends on the story, it depends on what you're writing about, I think. Yeah. Um, if it includes things that aren't related to you in some way, I think it's important that you, you would do that research and sit down and plan out how you're going to order it. So do you have a, is there a room at home with whiteboards and bits of string tying in different characters and locations? Or, no, I, no, I don't work like that myself. But we all work in different ways, yeah. like... Um, I've never really asked you about it yourself, actually, but I know there's certain people in the writing group that will plan it to an absolute T, that will will do... Uh, there's some fantasy writers in there that have, have drawn out elaborate worlds yeah. before they've even started writing a story. To me, that blows my mind, because as much as I, I don't read stuff like Lord of the Rings or anything fantasy-based, I sort of envy those writers because they can create these elaborate worlds and do this incredible research before actually putting it down. But we're just different in how we do it, yeah. and the different people that appreciate that. I'm an impatient writer. I want to create fantasy worlds and elaborate scenes, but I just want to get straight into the writing. And so that's why I often get 10,000 words in and then go, what am I doing here? What's going on? <laughs> you see, I think it's about finding your, 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 your ground with that. Like I said, I, I basically wrote 700 pages and then eventually turned that into a novel. It was just free-flowing because that was something I was going through at the time. So it's kind of hard to relate to something like that unless that's what you're writing right now. I think it's important as a writer that you find that. Um, And if something's not working, don't continue going with it if it's not working for you. Find find the bit that works for you, even if 
you know, I, I know it's easy to get involved in in projects and want to finish them, and then be like, well, I know this, and it works this, and it works this way. It's not ideal, but it's um, I get stuff done. If you're not happy with what you put out in the end, then that's probably something to do with it. And I think it's just as vital to take your time in finding what works for you and just uh, and just doing it. You know. So as well with the with the title character with Annie, the the character seems to be somewhat. She's somewhat tragic, but she doesn't actually seem to believe that she herself is tragic. Uh, was it tricky to find a balance with sort of vulnerability and defiance, or were you ever at risk of, of swaying too far to e- either side? Annie changed as I wrote her. She's based on someone who is who's still one of my best friends. That you know we were we were intimate for a little while, but essentially helped me to see beyond uh, a lot of things and to see. To see the life that I actually wanted to live, as, as cliche and as tacky as that sounds, she actually did that to me, and I'll forever be thankful to her. Even though she was essentially just, she was just a girl that I met, and we 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 kind of went out for a while. And but those people are kind of just as important as as sort of things like like um, Edie is in this story, for example. But what was, was interesting was I started out out writing Annie as a, a very unconfident character who just ended up not really meaning a lot other than uh, to tell the, the protagonist to sort of point him in the right direction while he's essentially takes her home and sleeps with her. Spoilers. Spoilers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's not kind of in any, uh, in, in any of the parts I'm going to... Uh, it's not in the final part. She's in the final part, but uh, that happens. Uh, oops. <laughs> so I started writing her like that. And what's interesting is because she's she's coming across as this quite vulnerable character in terms of the fact that she might be homeless. He doesn't really know what she's what 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 she's there for. She just seems to be walking the streets. There's certain assumptions you make about people like that that either they don't have a lot of money, and frankly, this is in a place that's quite um, an opulent place, or it, it just leads us to believe that this person is not uh, is going to be the weaker of the characters but what happens later on is um, she's turned into the stronger character which we'll see from the third expert, excerpt even and uh, whiskey's good stuff yeah, yeah <laughs> it's really good stuff um, and she, she essentially becomes one of the stronger characters in the story and I'm hoping that comes across but I like doing that with the characters is that Sort of the, the the one that seems to be the most beaten down, who's probably I'd say, or I like to think, is on a par with the, the protagonist, actually um, becomes stronger and sort of hopefully ends up empowering him in some way. Well, that's it as well, isn't it? You take a character who has these what would appear to be obvious flaws or weaknesses, but actually in a way they've strengthened the character into making them. Uh, given that sort of hard edge, that greater independence or whatever, yeah. which then informs their decisions and changes the way that they interact with other characters as well, which I think is it's, it's obviously very obvious in this story with this character, but it's something that I think that uh, is kind of hard to, to get right. Yeah. I know that definitely on this occasion and others, well, I'm sure you have gotten very right. Um, and of course, we would see that from the third excerpt. Mm. And yeah. If you don't mind. You want me to read that now? Yeah, that'd be amazing. Sure, yeah. Giving away the ending, of course, but, you know, apart from that. <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I don't think it's quite the end. No, no. Let, 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 let's see, shall we? This is essentially the final, um, the final part. So, yeah, basically, Annie 
after much debate, has gone back to uh, the main character, the protagonist. It's never really said about whether they actually sleep together or anything like that. She just comes back, she's admiring the view, and essentially we start off from here, but she has stayed overnight. I woke up the next morning and went to the kitchen for coffee. It was warm in the apartment again, and I left the duvet behind me. It was in use. I smiled because I didn't need it. I'd glimpsed her before I left the bedroom, because I didn't want to stare too long and risk waking her up. I stared down on Dean's gate and watched it get busier, hearing occasional movements from the bedroom while she stirred and found the best spot. It was on the right side of the bed, where Edie used to lay, where it wasn't as worn in or as broken. The wood didn't creak, and I couldn't find the sweet spot, no matter how hard I listened. The moment where she was loud enough in there, where she made the thought of the past evaporate against the window. I was watching the people grow and grow down on the ground, and they were moving just as fast as they always had. It wasn't right, but it was right enough. I turned around waiting for the kettle to boil, so I could take Annie a cup of rooibos. I picked up the tub of sugar in an old coffee container and the box of leaves, trying not to smell them, and started to slowly drop them into the cup, evenly, without mess. As the kettle clicked, the front door rattled open and closed. I stopped to listen like it hadn't happened. There was no other sound apart from the distant traffic from behind, where I'd cracked the balcony door open slightly. I exited the kitchen into the hallway, about to call Annie's name in vain, I thought, and there stood Edie, shaking her umbrella at the far end of the hallway. What are you doing here? I said I'd come, for the box. The box? What box? The last box. I turned to the balcony door where the box sat, just on the inside, just away from the rainfall. You made me tea. I turned back around and looked at the tea leaves and the cup in each hand. No. No. You hate rooibos. I stood for a minute and twisted back towards the balcony, toward the bedroom door, now more ajar than it was a few minutes ago. The wood in the bed creaked. Edie's head turned towards the door. She won't, I said under my breath. Ah, you're busy. I did tell you I was coming. Annie left the darkness of the bedroom and stood right in the middle, to the right of us, her fringe in her face. She pushed by me and headed for the shoe rack in the kitchen. Barefoot, she walked to the balcony and lit another cigarette that I'd kept in the bedside table. It was in the same drawer where all the other intimate but temporary items were kept. She left the balcony door wide open and sighed loudly. It's just as pretty in the light. Edie liked things to be particular. Annie was not particular, nor was she standard or predictable, and when such a thing appears in front of her like that, Edie got a little scared. A few more strings of wool loosened around me. Aren't you going to introduce me? She asked nervously, trying to be friendly, but looking as awkward as she possibly could. I'm Annie, Annie Partridge, she shouted from the balcony in between drags. Edie leaned into me. I don't need this shit today. Not again. You know how it gets at this time of year. Yeah. Yeah, I do, I remember, I said without a flinch. 
Hi, hi, I, I'm Edie, she called. I know, Annie said, closing the balcony door, walking towards us, heels in hand, still barefoot, stopping next to Edie. Her feet sat next to Edie's elegantly as she dropped her, her heels to the ground with a bang that echoed, landing next to Edie's New Balance trainers. You're leaving? Edie asked. Sounds like you two have shit to do. Shit that isn't anything to do with me. She leaned down to put on her heels, her head lingering in that crouched place, her makeup a little more smeared than it had been, staring up at me through the tops of her eyes with a smile and a lusty little wink, the second roll-up of the day between her teeth. My eyes searched out Edie, who was staring right at me. What do you do, Annie? Edie asked to break the stare. Yeah, what do you do, Annie Partridge? I asked. The most tragic thing in the world. She kissed me long and sure without breaking eye contact, without losing an eyelash, seeking Edie out with her eyes, looking back at me, untangling our lips. But I don't think I can justify that with you right now, can I? With that, Annie threw on Warren's coat and ran between me and Edie and tore a few more of those knotted strings. It might take a few Annies to finish it, the door closed behind her and we resumed with the silence in the hallway, a little smile on my face. The box, uh, the box. I showed her into the living room like she hadn't been there a million times before. Take a seat. How are Matt and Grace doing? They're getting there. I walked through from the balcony porch and handed the box to her. It was lighter than it looked, less heavy than it suggested, but twice as heavy in the heart. She sat on our sofa and opened the box, revealing a handmade scarf, 24 knitting needles and a half-done sweater, knitted in rare Japanese wool, an unusual blue and green tie-dye, and the same dried-on mess from that muddy summer puddle in the park. You kept it. She reached over the wings of the box and sighed, aching from her disease. She pushed herself through and searched the box for more of the time spent in the park, away from everyone else on the other side of the city. The little finger characters she had knitted for my brother's children that I could never part with after the play that just me and her put on for each other. The braces she knitted as a joke after I told her how much I hated wearing suits. The tie she was halfway through. A wool coat in green for the cat we would have chosen together. I held my hands back while she struggled through the box but found the jumpers that she knitted, made to match, with my face on hers and her face on mine. The rest of the wall just sat there in the bottom, tangled. Thank you very much. That was, yeah, I, I think that particularly in the stories that I've heard you share before, you have a great way of, of finishing off a story like that quite definitively and with quite a... I don't know, quite a heavy punch to it. Yeah. But in the best way. And I think that last moment, it would have been really easy to end that at, and Annie left, and they were standing there staring at each other. But you didn't. You went a little bit further, and you dropped in this moment that was kind of, that really hammered home how different those two characters were. Just yeah. in that one scene, which I think is fantastic. And also, I like to think um, that it, just showing the, 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 just a small change in the protagonist, mm -hmm. just a small change, the fact that he'd, he'd, um, 
held his hands back from because it was always a temptation because he'd sort of looked after her through these the, she sort of had SAD and, and these other things just to kind of hold himself back because he kind of knew that he had to yeah you know and not um, not fall back into that role that maybe a part of him wanted to yeah um, but that's the beauty of it and why I really like the story because I've heard many people say that the main character clearly wants to start again with this person and then others have said he, he wants to move on and he's and he's avoiding that which is um, I'm of the latter category yeah myself. Me too. I think that, and I think that what I, what I like with that as well is it shows that kind of development of the character where it's taken these little things yeah. to show him that although he has these fantastic memories of this thing he doesn't actually want that anymore although yeah. people might think he does but we don't think he does I mean in this bit uh, just briefly, Edie's, Edie's perhaps sounded a little harsh, but at no point did I ever want to did I want to put anyone across as like being a bitch or a prick or you know yeah. anything like that, which is why I wanted a slightly more sympathetic ending. I think. Yeah, and speaking of the ending, it, so the end of this one it, it seems to feature, for me anyway, sort of equal parts sadness and and hope. It's a, a bit of like you said before about having those potential to. Uh, routes for the protagonist to take. You know, does he want reconciliation? Does he want to move on? That's what I'm thinking. So sadness and hope. Um, sort of was it hope always the plan, or or did any earlier drafts have a, a more heavily melancholic ending to them? Well, the first draft, the the box was going right off the balcony. It was just being thrown. <laughs> there was there was there would have been no ED at the end. It was just basically it was going to essentially finish as it did with um, with Annie. And in his frustration, um, however you want to look at it, he just thrust it off this seventh floor of this balcony, <laughs> um, uh, which is potentially, although it's mostly wool and stuff in there, it's potentially fatal. Yes. Um, <laughs> especially down when there's like thousands of people walking in the main street below. But also there's, a, again, a catharsis to that maybe in that it's, he's not hanging on to this box that she's probably never coming for. So... It depends how you look at that. You could say that's a darker ending where there's not necessarily a resolution, but again, you could say there was a resolution there. But I wanted the sympathy. I wanted the yeah. sympathy for um, for Edie as well because breakups, anything like that, there's, there's never not a victim in this. There's never anyone that comes out completely clean. Yeah. And that's also kind of why I was going for an angle of... It's only really emphasised in this part... But throughout the story, in parts that aren't in these excerpts, he's talking about that wool and how tangled... The wool is a relevant thing because it's... Edie uses the wool and creates things with it. But it's something that can get very tangled, whether, you know... And you can become tangled in people and get stuck in place. And I think these little bits where I say, like, um, Annie sort of ran through in between them and it broke some of those... Hmm. I, I like that metaphor. Um, oh, me too. I think that it was it was nice to use that in the sense that what I, what I really like was that on that the, the the note of of no one necessarily getting out clean. I like that you didn't make there were no bad guys. No, I felt like yeah, okay. The protagonist forgot that he just come by for this box, and perhaps it wasn't the right time to have someone over. It maybe, but at the same time, no one is at fault in particular. Mm. And you could have gone in and you could have explained, you know, who did terrible things to who or whatever caused that to happen, but you didn't. It was just simply, that's not there anymore and they're now dealing with it. Yeah. And I like that a lot because then when you have that final scene with Annie in it, you've got 
sure that there's this kind of the hope of the protagonist thinking, okay, well, there's there's someone after Edie. There is a future for me beyond this other relationship. And you've also got for Edie, same kind of thing, but she can see, okay, well, he's moved on with this. Mm-hmm. So perhaps she could too, I guess. I think that with that, that's why I felt the hope outweighed the sadness. I think you're right. I think you've gone with that, that perhaps that earlier draft with the, the launched box. Um, it would have been a bit more... I think the anger would have... Murderous. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, the anger would have put more of the blame... It would have, well, it would have inferred that there was more blame for Edie, potentially, that he was angry about the breakup. Whereas in this, he's a bit sad about it because it's happened. Not for the consequence, just for the action that it's happened. But I quite like that. It, it's, it's subtle. It's not... It doesn't have to be, this person broke this person's heart and now it's awful. Like, it's just, they had a thing. It's not there anymore. And I'm sure there are so many relationships the world over that just end. Yeah. They don't end because something huge has happened. It's just been, they don't, it doesn't work anymore, so it ends. Exactly, I, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just like the fact that you've, you've left it with that and you haven't gone for some huge, like, massive kind of attacking final moment or anything. Some big statement, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I don't, I've never been a fan of writers who tell you exactly how you should be feeling about something or how p- things are for people. Because I've known people who've read that story and still seen Edie as the bitch. Mm-hmm. I've known people who've seen Annie as a, a little slut who basically who is, is, is just no good. Um, and also equally people who say this guy should stop feeling sorry for himself. But I think where I've gone right with this story, and it's weird it, me sort of saying that because I'm, in, as I'm sure many writers are, uh, I'm intensely critical of my own work sure. but I think where I've gone right with this is getting the mix right of not say, not telling too much about how you should be feeling about the people but enough to that you know enough about each character and their situation whether they're distant or right in the front of you like the protagonist is to make your own judgments on that and although it's, it's edging towards that these two people have broken up and it's not pleasant you can take it however you want to take it, you know, that if you feel some sympathy for this main protagonist, great, you know, and you don't like Edie. Or, or you can look at it from all angles and, and no one's the bad guy, like you say. Mm. Like, no one's the good guy, no one's the bad guy. No, I like that a lot. I think that, I think that takes a lot of skill as a writer to be able to leave that open for people. Because I think that the, the first instinct for, for any writer would be to say... This is what the person is feeling. This is what has happened. This is how you should feel towards this person because they are this character. And being able to be a bit more hands-off about it and just say, these things have happened. You work that out. Yeah. I think it takes a, a certain level of, of discipline, probably, that perhaps not everyone has, but perhaps everyone could learn if they're trying to. I think, I think, it's, a, I think it's, a, it's an important one for me because that's, that's the style that I like and the style I like to write as well. I like, uh, I've said to you many times before, I like the, the, the words that you don't necessarily read. That, you know, that, that I think those are just as important as the ones you are reading, yeah. if you know what I mean by that, what, what your mind assumes from that, what your mind takes from it. Because that's kind of what entertainment is for me. Uh, you know, that... that you're left what with, is meant but not what is said. Yeah, you, guess, you, yeah. yeah you're left with something that's, that's yours at the same time. And I think that's a great thing in, in storytelling and, and, and understanding that. You want people to feel something from it, whether it's from a personal experience or they just, I don't know, they, they, they feel sorry for a character or they, as long as they feel something and it's not completely out the window like you took from this, you know, you know that all these people were horrible, horrible terrible human beings and you know that that's completely the thing that you know it's the thing that you don't want people to get from it 
as long as they, they, they get something from it that they can either appreciate or it makes them think about it, that's enough for me. That's, that's what I go out to achieve. I, I think you've done it with this one. I think, I think if, you, if you can already think of examples of people who have felt for one character or the other character or the other character, you're, you're leaving that open enough for people to have that very unique experience with it. I yeah. think that if you can write a story that gives each person who reads it a unique experience, then you've, you've definitely done the right thing. Yeah. You've done it well. I think another thing with, with storytelling is, and, and, and writing in general is you've got to bring something in that... The, 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 this is quite an obvious one because it's, it's essentially a breakup story. Yeah. You've got to bring something in that can relate to. Like, um, like for example, I'm, I'm writing that war story. I'm trying to bring things in that people, everyone can kind of touch on in some way, whether it's childhood, it's having children, it's, it's that love that you feel towards your child and your concern for them and your worry. Or the, the happiness that having a conversation that only the two of you can have with each other brings. You can, I think you can write about pretty much anything within reason. As long as you bring that to it, then people are on board and they will read it and they will listen. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's bigger thinking, of course, but I, I think that's important to making sort of changes to a lot of things as well in the world. Um, you've got to bring something in that people can relate to and look at and say, yeah, I'm on board with that and I, and I can appreciate where you're coming from there even if it's not identical that's that gets those people engaged and that could potentially lead to some really important things and although you know we're working on a much smaller scale writing short stories i think that's how the world turns well i want to say thank you tom for for joining me today on this i think that that's the story that you shared uh, what do you do annie is fantastic and it's definitely if not my favorite one of my favorites from Alcoves and Zedlining. Thank you. So thank you for sharing that with us. And that just about brings us to a close on this, our inaugural episode of Whiskey and Words. I want to say a big thank you to the author, Tom Rowe. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And this is an awesome little whiskey, which yeah. I may actually steal. Yep, yep. I'll watch out for that. Writer's <laughs> Tears is fantastic. Uh, also, uh, Tom's uh, novel, Not Dark Yet, and his short story collection, Alcoves and Zedlining, are both available on Amazon, and there will be links uh, in the description of this podcast as well Uh, but thank you and we'll hope to see you all next time